you have your Bible, would you take it and turn with me to Psalm chapter 11. Psalm chapter 11, I know that's a little different than what was in your bulletin or what's on the screen in front of you. This will be our text for the sermon this morning, Psalm chapter 11. Listen to the word of the Lord as I read it for us this morning. Psalm 11, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it is truly wonderful to be back here at Poplar Spring uh, in Bunn. We uh, so enjoyed the time that God gave us here uh, to serve uh, the church and um, it's just great to be back. So good to see so many familiar faces uh, that we enjoyed getting to know in our time here, but also to see so many new faces that God has brought here to serve uh, the church and to grow as followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, I bring you welcome and greetings from Hiram, Georgia. Uh, we are a suburb of Atlanta, as Stephen said, uh, but we're not really that. We're kind of just a, a small place that has just boomed because of people wanting to get away from Atlanta. And so they took up residence in Hiram and Paulding County and what was once country uh, has now been populated and it has grown immensely. And it's a wonderful mission field that God has placed us in to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I also want to give you greetings from Kathy, my wife, uh, our children. They so wanted to be here this week, but schedules wouldn't allow it. Uh, Our children uh, have grown just like all of yours have. Uh, We have four now. When we left North Carolina, we only had three. We went back and Uh, to Georgia in 2011, and in 2012, our last child, Jack, was born. So uh, we have Walker, our oldest, is 11 years old now. And I love how uh, God brought us to Poplar Springs. Tell you a quick story, and then we'll jump into Psalm 11 this morning. Uh, At the time when God brought us here, Walker was about a year and a half old. And uh, I was fortunate enough to have Dr. Wade for one of my first classes there at the seminary, biblical counseling. And uh, at the opening uh, class, he told about where he pastored, where he served, and gave explicit instructions, please do not come to my church. And uh, I did not listen to that word. I listened to other things that he said, but I ignored that completely. Uh, And part of that was because at one of the breaks early on in the class, we sat talking, discussing uh, a couple of us and uh, just in casual conversation. And somehow the conversation turned to guns and hunting and all of that. And I thought, this is a place the Lord would have me to go and see uh, if I should serve here. And so in God's providence, we found ourselves here at Poplar Spring. And on that first Sunday, we came and visited. And uh, as we were leaving that day, crowds had kind of filtered out. And I was uh, standing back at the the doors talking with uh, with Stephen. And Caleb and Walker, there's about a year's difference between them. uh, They found themselves playing here in the center aisle. And I looked back about three-quarters of the way back. And Caleb Wade uh, has my son in a headlock. And uh, they're just going at it. And I thought, man, this is the place, you know, the pastor's son beats up on my son, and this is obviously where God would have us to be. And uh, so we came here, and it was wonderful. Uh, The way you loved us, the way you supported us, uh, some of the best memories of our life, uh, some of the best memories we have in ministry 
are right here at Poplar Springs. So we're excited to be back with you. Walker's 11. Uh, Reese, our oldest daughter, is now eight. She was two months old when God called us away from Poplar Spring to go serve in Clinton, North Carolina. She's now eight. Ivy, uh, she was our last child that was born in North Carolina. My two girls were born in North Carolina. My two boys were born in Georgia. And uh, so I have high hopes for them being born in Georgia. Uh, But Ivy is six now, and she brings so much joy to our life. She is the unique one out of our four uh, sometimes we wonder how God blessed us with her and where she came from, uh, but she is absolutely wonderful. And then Jack's our baby boy. He turned four in February, and uh, he rounded uh, our family out. Our motto was four and no more, uh, unless God works in mysterious ways, and we leave that up to him. But we're excited to be here with you this morning and uh, excited to spend these next couple of days with you. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and get into God's Word this morning. Psalm 11 is where we will be. So Stephen read that for us just a few moments ago, but keep your Bible open because we're going to work our way back through uh, that psalm together. And in our time that we have beginning this morning and through the revival meetings, I want us to, uh, to consider this thought, Christ and culture. Christ and culture. And what I mean by that is I want us to think together how our faith factors into the world that we live in today. How can we live faithfully in a fallen world? How do we live faithfully in a world that's been broken by sin? Or to put it another way, how do we live right when the world around us has gone so wrong? What does that look like for us? What does it look like day in, day out for us to be committed followers of Jesus Christ in a world uh, that has turned uh, so drastically, in in a country, in a culture that has turned so drastically, so quickly away Uh, from Christian principles that we were founded upon. I think it's right for us to consider that thought in these days that we have. I think it's needed. I think we've got to prepare ourselves to to live accordingly to the world that is around us now. Uh, Nearly 50 years ago, 1964, a young musician by the name of Bob Dylan, some of you might have bought the record when he put it out, I don't know, but he released a song that was set to a folksy tune and he titled it, The Times They Are A-Changin'. The times they are a change. And he titled it that way purposefully. He put the, the A in front of changing to add emphasis, to drive a point home. In his own, own words, it was a song that he wrote and sang with a purpose. Reminds you of those words that he sang in 1964. Come, gather round people, wherever you roam, and admit that the waters around you have grown. And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone. If your time to you is worth saving, then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone for the times they are a-changing. Come mothers and fathers throughout the land and don't criticize what you can't understand. Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. Your road, your old road is rapidly aging. Please get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand for the times they are a-changing. The line it is drawn, the curse it is cast, the slow one now will later be fast, as the present now will later be past, your old road is rapidly fading, and the first one now will later be last, for the times they are a-changing. Dylan wrote those words as a call to join in an upstart cultural revolution. He wasn't merely looking for trends to pass away or new fads to be brought upon the scene. He was looking for a seismic shift in the way the culture was operating, in the way the world was viewing things. 
He wanted people to join him in that, and many did. But as we consider his words this morning, they almost ring hollow today. They almost are obsolete because the truth is the times are not just a change in. The times have changed. It's clear. It's obvious. The world we live in is different today than the world that you grew up in. And we've got to understand that. So this morning as we look in Psalm 11 and as we continue in these meetings together to consider Christ and culture, I want you to understand that we're not going to concern ourselves with what we as a country or even as communities may have been founded upon or what we were at one time. We might have been a nation that was built upon Christian principles and we might have even enjoyed many years as a Christian nation, but the reality is that is no longer the case. That's no longer the case. And no one is immune from that. Even here in North Carolina, uh, your country has been put at the forefront of the change that has taken place over a bill that was presented in your legislature to, to keep people going into bathrooms that identify with their biological sex. We're having that whole debate. We're seeing all of that take place because the times have changed. The culture around us has shifted drastically. So when we think about Christ and culture in our time together this week, we're not going to think about what we once were. We're not going to think about what we might have been founded upon. Instead, I want us to think about where we're at today. And it really comes down to this. We can live on memories or we can live on mission. We can live on memories of what it used to be of uh, what it once was like, of the good old days, or we can live on mission for Jesus Christ, no matter what is taking place around us. And that's my desire for, for my life, for my church, it's my desire for you and your church as followers of Jesus Christ, that you would be a people who live on mission in our culture and in our communities. Let me ask you a question. Isn't that what Jesus did? Jesus Christ in the incarnation, left the glories of heaven. Paul writes about his great humiliation in Philippians chapter 2 in that great Christological passage where, where he left heaven and he condescended and came to earth and dwelt among us as God-man, as man, as God in the flesh. He, he came to a culture, John tells us in his gospel, John 1, that despised him, that rejected him, that wanted nothing to do with him, but yet he came on mission. And that's what we're called to do as well in the culture that views us in very much the same way. Bruce Ashford, who's dean there at Southeastern, wrote in his book, Every Square Inch, where he considers uh, the Christian's activity and culture these words. He says, our mission as Christians includes identifying the ways in which our cultures are corrupted and misdirected by sin, and then doing everything in our power to help bring healing and redirection to them. When we do this, we are obeying Christ. We're obeying Christ. To recognize what is taking place in our culture, to see the wickedness, to see the sin, to see the areas of misdirection and corruption, and then to do everything in our power to bring healing and redirection, we're obeying Christ in that. It's not simply enough to think about what it used to be. 
or how great it was back then. No, we're called to action in the culture that is now surrounding us. For that to happen, we must understand the times. We must know what is taking place. It reminds me of uh, what the Bible says of the men of Issachar in 1 Chronicles 12, 32. They were men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. So I think that's why it's important for us to consider this thought of Christ and culture in our world today. What do we do in the world that we are now living in? What do we do with all the changes that have taken place? What does it look like for us to be gospel-focused, mission-minded people in the culture of our country today? The times have changed, but we must understand the unchanging truth of God's Word and the gospel still impacts our country, our community, and our culture. So this morning we come to Psalm 11 to begin this thought of Christ and culture. And Psalm 11 presents us with the question in verse 3, what can the righteous do? What can the righteous do? It's a question we've got to ask, and it's a pertinent one for our day. What do we do? When we look at Psalm 11 as a whole, it breaks down into two parts, and that's how we're going to look at it this morning. So if you're into taking notes, you'll have two points uh, to write down. Uh, Maybe not typical Baptist, three points. Uh, Two points for you this morning as we break down the text from Psalm 11 that can help us understand what do the righteous do. The first thing that I want you to see in the first three verses of Psalm 11 is the believer's crisis, the believer's crisis. David is the author of this psalm. He penned it in the midst of a personal crisis in his life. Uh, We're not exactly sure of the setting. We're not exactly sure what brought about these words that he wrote here for us. Uh, Some think it was probably during the time when he was hiding and running from Saul, fearing for his life. But whatever it was, uh, something that had him troubled, something that had him uh, concerned. And he was receiving counsel from the outside that was causing him great grief. And when we look at his words, we can see that they parallel the situations that we face today as well. Look back with me in Psalm 11 and verse 1. David says, in the Lord I take refuge. He's making his testimony to being a believer in Yahweh, to being a believer in God, to being a follower of God. It's his personal testimony. I am a believer. Today, if you have the testimony of of being a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to be able to relate to what it is that David's fixing to say. And I hope you have that testimony this morning. I hope that you have a testimony of having repented of your sins and surrendered your life in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So in verse 1, David comes out of the gate saying, I believe in the Lord I take my refuge. We would say, in Jesus Christ I have my trust. He offers a testimony of being a believer. But notice immediately what happens because of his testimony. Look in verse 2. Flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Verse 1, David gives his testimony. Then at the end of verse 1, he says, So how then can you say to me these words in verse 2 and verse 3? Flee, make like a bird and get away to the mountains. For they have fitted their arrow to the string. The wicked are out to get you. Sounds eerily similar to our culture today. Because of the testimony 
of being a Christ follower. We are attacked by the world more so than we ever have been before in our country. They're trying to inflict great harm, even grievous harm, opposition and persecution. It's all around us today. Name the name of Christ. Take a stand for Jesus in our culture, and you will face an attack from the wicked. You're familiar with these stories. Bakers in Oregon, photographers in New Mexico, pizza shop owners in Indiana, who all operated their businesses based upon Christian principles and a testimony of being followers of Jesus Christ and have been put out of business for taking a stand for their faith. The wicked have it out for them. Not only are the wicked out to get those who name the name of Christ, but we also see in verse 2 that David is reminded of the darkness that is around. Those speaking to David say the, the wicked, they're out to get you. They're aiming for you. They want to shoot you down, and they're doing so in the midst of the dark. I think you would have to agree with me that we live in our country in a very dark spiritual time. It's a very dark culture, spiritually speaking. What we see on the television screen, what we read in newspaper articles, what we hear in news headlines, it reminds us of the darkness that is so pervasive. But then in verse 3, David is prompted by those speaking to him, bringing concern into his heart about the foundations being destroyed. If the foundations are destroyed, they say, what are you going to do, David? What are you going to do? The wicked are out to get you. The foundations of society, David, they are being destroyed. They are crumbling around us. What can you do as a righteous person? I think you would agree with me as well that we see those foundations crumbling in our culture as well. We live in a age where immorality is rampant. We live in an age where what is evil is called good and what is good is called evil. Isaiah 5.20 is literally being lived out before our eyes. And so the question is asked, what do the righteous do? David, what are you going to do? They're out to get you. It's spiritually dark and bleak, and the society that you know is crumbling all around you. Decadence and decay, depravity is in in the uprising. What are you going to do? The world gives us three options. We see it in the words that are offered to David here. In the midst of a, a society that is falling rampantly into sin, the world says, here's three things you can do as a follower of Jesus Christ. In verse 2, they say, flee flee. They tell David, escape to your mountain like a bird. The world would love nothing more than for us to escape with our faith and allow it to become irrelevant to the culture and the community that we live in. Just flee. Just get out of our sight, get out of our minds, uh, let your words be silent. We want nothing to do with you. We want you to just be gone. The world today thinks it would be a better place if there was no Christian presence in it. So flee, it's option one. Option two, we see in verse two, and that is we can fear. We can fear. Behold, the wicked bend the bow. They put their arrow to the string, and they're going to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. We're in the crosshairs of the wicked in the world. 
I don't know if you've ever looked down the barrel of a gun from the wrong end, but it's a fearful thing. It's a fearful thing. And here's the amazing thing about fear. It is a great paralyzer in our life. It will render you motionless. It will render you impotent. A couple of years ago, Walker and I uh, traveled with some other young men from our church to a, a lake nearby where we lived, and and I went out on the boat for the day and I went back into this cove. And in that cove, there was a, a rock face that you could access by going up behind it. And it was about a, a 15-foot drop into a deep pool, and, you know, everybody does it. You go up to the top and you jump off in the water. It's just what you do, right? So we went up, and Walker jumped one time, and he said, I'm done. I'm not doing it again. I said, all right, I commend you for that. So I went back up some more and tried to get him to go up some more, but he, he wouldn't do it. But in our time up there, there were other groups coming up and doing the same thing. And in one group, there was about three college-age young men, late teens, early 20s, had their girlfriends perhaps with them, spending a day on the lake. And, and man, they were going to be impressive. They were going to go up here and they were going to do some amazing gymnastics off this rock ledge to impress the ladies that were with them. And these guys were muscled up. I mean, they were in the prime of their life, you know. I mean, they were fit, strong guys. And, and so I just kind of stood back and watched them. They climbed up, went to the edge, and the first one said, all right, I'm going to go. And he backed off about 15 feet to get him a running start. And, man, he took off and about half a foot from the edge, he slammed on the brakes. I can't do it. I can't do it. The rest of them, oh, man, you're just chicken. You're just, man, you're just scared and all this other stuff. So it's time for number two to be big boy. He backs up about 15 feet, gets him a running start. Same thing, throws the brakes on. Ultimately, none of them ever went off the ledge. I didn't have the heart to tell him, hey, my, my nine-year-old son just did it about 10 minutes ago. He can show you how to do it if you want him to. But fear Fear had gripped them. They came to the edge and the drop that was before them, the uncertainty of what would happen when they hit the water, it paralyzed them and brought them to an abrupt stop. Listen, fear would do the same thing in our life as followers of Christ. When it grips our heart, when we become consumed about what the world may do to us or what the world may say to us or the harm the world may inflict upon us, it will stop you dead in your tracks as a follower of Jesus Christ. It's what the world wants, though. They want us to be fearful. We can flee, verse 1. We can fear, verse 2. And then in verse 3, the world calls us just to fret, just to worry. They, they ask the question to David, if the foundations are destroyed, what can you do about it? What can you do about the changes that you see happening? What recourse can you take in the world today? And as they ask that question, it incites within the heart anxiety, concern. Perhaps you've experienced that as you've heard news reports, as you've watched newscasts of riots that have broken out across our country. As you hear the stories that are replayed night after night over incidences that have taken place. What are we going to do? What is our world going to look like in 10 years? What will my children have to face? What are you going to do, follower of Jesus, when the foundations of society around you crumble? What do you do? It's the crisis we face. It's a crisis David 
faced in Psalm 11. It's one that we face today in our world, in our society, in our country, in our communities. What will we do? I'm grateful Psalm 11 doesn't end with verse 3, that it continues on for four more verses. And that's the second half of the psalm. After explaining the crisis that he was facing, David goes on to offer the believer's confidence in verses 4 through 7. In the midst of cultural crisis, in the midst of things changing and continuing to change and, and sin growing more and more rampant in the world, we can maintain great confidence. Let me read these verses to you again. Psalm 11 verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Did you notice the the change in Psalm 11? Did you notice uh, the difference in, in tone in Psalm 11? The first three verses are bleak and dark and heavy, but immediately in verse 4, David responds with great confidence. Yes, it may be dark. Yes, the wicked may be on the prowl. Yes, you may want me to leave. Yes, my heart may have reason to fear. And yes, my hands may ring and fret. But let me remind you that God is in his holy temple. God is on his throne. We can have great confidence today as followers of Jesus Christ, no matter what is taking place around us. I'm reminded of what John wrote in his letter, 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's true even today. The one who lives within us, Christ in you, the hope of glory, is greater than the one who is in the world. So our confidence today is not found in the cultural climate or the circumstances that it may bring about, but our confidence today is found in our great God. I wonder, is that where your trust lies? As you survey the the scene of culture today, where's your confidence? Where's your confidence at? Or are you living in the first three verses of Psalm 11, fleeing and fearing and fretting? Listen, don't live in verses 1 through 3. Live in verses 4 through 7, where your life is a display of the one who is ruling and reigning over all. Let me show you three reasons that you can have great confidence in your God. And we see these reasons, as David gives them to us, based upon the actions of God. Our God is at work even in the world today. He's at work. And everything that is happening, everything that is transpiring, God is at work. He is actively engaging in the world that he has created. Let me show you these four or these three actions of God. First of all, look in verse 4. David reminds us that our God reigns. He reigns. He is sitting in his holy temple. His throne is in heaven. It reminds us that he reigns today in power. There is none above our God. He rules and he reigns over all. It reminds us of the vision that Isaiah was given in Isaiah chapter 6. The throne of Israel had been vacated by Uzziah. 
a time where, where concern was throughout the kingdom, what's going to happen next. Uh, instability was probably a reality for them. But the Lord gives Isaiah this great reminder. Listen, the, the earthly throne may be vacated, but the heavenly throne is still occupied. And hear me, God still sits on his throne today. I don't know, you don't know what will take place come November. We don't know what will take place four years after that or four years after that or four years after that. We do not know. But what we do know is that God will rule and reign over all things, all time. That's our confidence today. And he rules with power. He also rules with perspective. David tells us that his, his eyes see. His eyes see. Nothing escapes the the gaze of a holy God sitting upon his heavenly throne. So what this tells us is that his kingdom is not shifting or crumbling. His kingdom is sure. His foundations are forever settled. Psalm 11 is a companion psalm with Psalm 46. Uh, It's a psalm that begins in very similar fashion. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in the time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way and though the mountains are cast into the heart of the sea and those waters roar and foam in the mountains, tremble at its, swe- at its swelling. Then in the second stanza of that psalm, David writes, There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Don't miss what's happening in Psalm 46. And don't miss what it's the same thing that's happening here in in Psalm 11. There's a comparison. Yes, the foundations of this world may be growing rocky. They may be growing unstable, but listen to me. The foundations of the heavenly kingdom are as sure as they have ever been. The world may may shake. The mountains may be cast into the heart of the sea. But hear me, the city of a heavenly God will not be moved. That's our confidence today. The Hebrew writer reminds us of this beautiful truth in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 28. There he he reminds the Hebrew believers that we should rejoice for we have been given a kingdom, listen to this, that cannot be shaken. Rejoice for we've been given a kingdom that can't be shaken this morning. Listen to me. If your kingdom is shaking today, it's because you're living in the wrong one. If your kingdom is shaking today, It's because you're living in the wrong kingdom. Our God is in his holy temple. He sits upon his throne in heaven. His eyelids test the children of man. Our God reigns today, no matter what happens in the culture around us. But secondly, David goes on in verse 5 and verse 6. He tells us not only does our God reign, but he also reminds us that our God judges as well. Look at what he says. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. 
I think a lot of frustration that we perhaps experience in the world that we are now a part of and the, the culture that we now see around us is the frustration of the wicked seemingly getting by with things. The prevailing of the sinful. Hear me. Our God is a righteous judge. David told us in verse 4 that his eyelids see, his eyes see all. And in seeing, he will test, he will test his own, the righteous, but he will also administer judgment to those who despise him. Those who love wickedness, those who love violence, he will rain coals down upon them, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. I love what Abraham said to the Lord in Genesis 18. You remember that scenario. Lot is down in Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord has pronounced judgment upon that city, and Abraham is in a bargaining uh, conversation with God to spare the city for Lot's sake. They had this conversation. If there's 50 people there, Lord, would you not spare it? The Lord said, sure will. But Abraham is immediately concerned because he knows there's not 50 righteous people living in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the bargaining uh, begins to go down and it decreases and it decreases and it decreases. And ultimately, Abraham makes this plea, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the answer is yes. A thousand times over, the judge of all the earth, the Lord who sits in his holy temple, who sits upon his throne in heaven, whose eyes see and eyelids test all of mankind, he will always do right. He will offer reward for the righteous and retribution for the wicked. Our God judges. Our God judges. And all the sin and all the wrong will one day come under his righteous holy judgment the wills of god's god's justice they may turn slowly but they grind finally so we can have confidence in our world today knowing that judgment will come from a heavenly god our god reigns our god judges and then david ends the psalm in verse 7 and he reminds us that our god loves our god loves He is righteous, he says, and he loves righteous deeds. And the upright shall behold his face. Our God loves. And he specifically and uniquely loves his own. Paul elaborates this on this in Romans chapter 8. Starting in verse 31, he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who then can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And hear me, that may very well become reality for us in our country in not too many years. I'm not here to be a prophet of doom. I'm not here to to be uh, a soothsayer of dramatic things that perhaps could come. But if we continue on the trend in our nation that that we are heading down, 
It's going to grow more and more difficult for followers of Christ. Opposition will soon give way to persecution. It's going to cost more to be a Christian in this nation than it probably has ever cost before. And should it even mean that some would have to be led as sheep to the slaughter? What does that mean for us? What does that mean in regards to the love that God has for us? Listen to what Paul concludes with. He says, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let your confidence be today in a God who loves you as his child. And that that love that he has for you will never be taken from you. There's nothing that can happen, nothing that can come that will separate you from the love that Christ Jesus has for you as his own today. And that gives us confidence to live in a culture that is going crazy all around us. We don't have to flee. We don't have to fret. We don't have to fear. No, we can boldly live out our faith with confidence in our God. So my prayer today is that as you remember the words of Psalm 11, That you will find your refuge in the Lord. That you will maintain your firm stance in him. That you will live in the confidence today that it gives. Don't live on memories. Don't live on what used to be. Don't live on the way that it was, but instead live confidently on mission for the king. Because he is in his holy temple. Do not flee, do not fear, do not fret. But live out your faith as a follower of Jesus Christ in the world that is around you. Knowing that God loves you and that love will never be taken. What shall the righteous do? What shall the righteous at Poplar Spring Baptist Church in Bunn, North Carolina, what shall you do? I hope that you'll live out your faith, even in a world that's fallen.